Bibles, please turn in them to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. The text can also be found on page five, pages 5 and 6 in the bulletin. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. And as you do, please join me in praying and asking God for help to understand his word. God, to you indeed belong the power and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made us your people. And we pray as this word calls us to be faithful, that you would help us by your spirit to be faithful. May my words be true. May we listen and hear what you have for us in your life-giving word this morning, we pray. Amen. How does the future shape the way you live in the present? If your answer is the future has no way of shaping how I live in the present, I'm going to challenge you to reconsider. Whether you are intentional about it or not, the future particularly what we hope for or even what we expect from it, does impact how we live in the present. Students, particularly older students, if you're closer to, to college, if college is in your future, you will pursue good grades and that impressive resume today. You're not going to wait the day before you graduate. Or if you're in athletics or some other skill-related endeavor, you're going to seek to hone those skills to improve them right now through practice and effort. For adults, maybe a retirement is in your future. And if so, you will start putting money aside if you haven't already as soon as you can. You might even pass on buying things, purchasing things today for the sake of having money when work is done. Or for those of us not anywhere near retirement, if there's a big purchase in the future like a home or a car, you adjust what you're doing now so you can afford it or save up for it down the road. And this doesn't just apply to individuals, but to companies, corporations, even government systems. Anticipate, look towards the future to instruct how they behave in the present. Decisions are often made in light of the future or sometimes in complete absence of the light of the future. But plans are developed in hopes that there would be a desired outcome. And this applies not only to the more optimistic outlook, but the pessimistic ones as well. If you believe that the future is all doom and gloom, your life right now will reflect a belief of doom and gloom. I think of those that, that, that show from a few years ago, I think it was on National Geographic, uh, called Doomsday Preppers, where these families would prepare and they anticipated for whatever they envisioned the doomsday was. Here's a list. Super volcanoes economic collapse, terrorist attack, attacks, food shortages. And these individuals stored up food, arms, everything to become as self-sustaining and, and 
and established as they possibly could. What people believe about the future and what their desires are for the future will affect how they live now. And Peter confirms this reality in our text this morning by encouraging his audience of scattered and suffering Christians to live in light of their very certain future. It should shape the way that they live, not simply as a collection of individuals, but more importantly, as a community of believers. Those who Peter would call a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, who were also sojourners and exiles on earth. Because that is what Peter's audience felt like. This audience of Christians are scattered, they're suffering, they're discouraged. Some have been beaten, some have watched loved ones be executed. Some have lost everything or stand at a threat to lose everything simply because they hold fast to Christ. And so it would have been very tempting for them to view the future as doom and gloom, especially in light of the present hardships. It would have been very tempting for them to run and to hide or to just give up altogether. But Peter comes here throughout this whole letter, but here in these verses in chapter 4, and he reminds the church of the hope that is hers, as well as her high calling that she's been given by her groom and her head. He essentially tells them the church living in light of the end means living together for the glory of God. The church living in light of the end means living together for the glory of God. It doesn't matter what we may think the outlook presently may be. How we live as a community of believers remains the same, whether the circumstances are helpful or hurtful. Because our end is certain. And so therefore, in all things, we can live confidently to the glory of God. Peter exhorted the early church in the first century here, and by, his, by the Holy Spirit, he exhorts us today. The points are printed for you there in the bulletin. First, a proper perspective, then proper practices, and then finally, a proper purpose. And please note that the most of our time is going to be spent on that middle point, because that's where Peter spends most of his time. So if that middle point seems a little long, it's intentional. Don't get worried. But Peter starts with a proper perspective. Right from the beginning, Peter reorients the outlook of these scattered and suffering Christians when he says the end of all things is at hand. Now I must admit saying the end of all things sounds a bit negative, dark and gloomy. It seems a bit odd that Peter would start an encouragement by saying the end of all things is at hand. I don't know what might come to your mind when you hear the phrase end of all things, but for me, and it won't surprise you where I'm going, it reminds me of the Lord of the Rings novels. We're at the very end as Mount Doom is crumbling and Mordor is dissolving around Frodo and Sam. Frodo says, for the quest is achieved, now all is over. I am glad that you are here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. It's a very emotional moment. But it's a phrase that has little optimism in the moment. Sam and Frodo have no expectation that rescue is coming. There's, there's no plans to make it back to the Shire. 
they're ready to end there at the foot of Mordor as everything crumbles around them. Sure, they finished the task, but that was it for them. And so we could be tempted to kind of read it like we would the, the Lord of the Rings novels and think the end of all things is, is doom and gloom. It's depression, it's sadness. It's sitting there waiting for the fire. And to an extent, though, it is true. The end of all things certainly means judgment. If we had the time, I would have read the previous verses of chapter 4, 1 through 6, where Peter describes that the end of all things certainly means retribution for those he describes in verse 3. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and so forth. For those who will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so in one, in one sense, saying the end of all things is a very sobering reality. It is a warning both to those who are living like those in verse 3, but also to us who are tempted to maybe envy those who live like verse 3 and seem to get away with it. The end of all things is at hand. But more than a warning, more than a sobering reality, these words are meant to encourage they are meant to strengthen and motivate these Christians who are suffering and scattered. The word translated end here is the Greek word that some of you are likely familiar with, telos, which means the goal or the outcome. We could easily say the goal of all things is at hand. Which then begs the question, well, what is the goal of all things? Thankfully, Peter's already written about it. If you're open to 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 3 and 4, where Peter says, You've been born again to a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then again, he says in verse 1-9, The outcome, the telos of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This telos, this goal, is nothing less than the full realization of God's eternal plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. It is consummation. Or as Edmund Clowney writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, it is the glad hope of the new order that is to come with Christ. This is our proper perspective. This is what is at hand. It's our proper perspective as individuals. It's our proper perspective as a church. Our fully realized salvation awaits us. It has been secured and accomplished in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to name names, but there is a certain individual in our midst here who regularly posts, if you follow this individual, X many days until Christmas. It's a countdown this, this individual gives at various points throughout the year. And I believe that her hope is to provide for all of us a renewed perspective. If your day or your week in this given moment is rough, the joy of Christmas is coming. Have a new perspective. If your day or your week is great, more joy is coming because Christmas is only so many days ahead. I, I, I'll admit, there have been days where I've seen this individual's post and it, it's given me a new perspective, maybe for a few minutes of my day. But not to downplay this, this friend, the consummation is Christmas on steroids. The perspective that the end, the consummation of all things is at hand is enough for each and every day of each and every year that we wait for Christ's return. 
and it is at hand. It's near. It literally means it could be here at any moment. Both Jesus and John the Baptist would say the same thing when they said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It is here now. Even as we labor and we press on amid suffering and trial, it is present and working in and amongst us. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We are living in the last stages of our redemption. Our blessed hope is one day closer than it was yesterday. This world is not our home. The hope of this world is not our hope. The goals of this world are not our goals. And yet too often we live like they are. Let us confess how our perspective can be so limited, it can be so finite. It can be wrapped in what we see. We think political victories or a greater social influence or maybe even just an easier and relatively carefree way of life is our telos. And when this is the case and those things don't turn out, it leads us to despair. Our side, whatever side it is, will not always win. People's adoration will wane. Life will get hard and sometimes unbearably so. May God's spirit reorient us as Peter reorients his audience's perspective to the reality that our hope is near. All the sojourning, all the longing will end. To quote Edmund Clowney again, the Lord will bring judgment, justice, and the wonder of new creation. May that be our perspective from now until the day of Christ's return. But a proper perspective, however, is not the end in and of itself. Peter emphasizes it should lead to proper practice. This is why Peter says, therefore, in light of the end, therefore, do this. If the community of believers maintains the perspective that our realized salvation is near, we will conduct ourselves accordingly. We will live in a way that anticipates that it could come at any day. Or to borrow Paul's words in Ephesians 5.16, we will make the best use of the time. And Peter proceeds then to give four commands or four implications for all believers. These are the practices of those who have the end of all things perspective. And first we see there's a clear and a right thinking. He says in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter has also used sober-minded back in chapter 13 of, in verse 13 of chapter 1, and he'll use it again in verse 8 of chapter 5. Sober-mindedness is an important characteristic for Christians living in a fallen world awaiting their hope. It includes the notion of being realistic and wise. We don't respond to the chaos surrounding us, on the one hand, unfazed or uninterested, but neither do we get caught up in the panic and the frenzied chaos that results from it. Together with self-control, these two emphasize a soundness of mind and a soundness of body. It is to be disciplined. 
And this contrasts very starkly what's been read earlier from verse chapter 3. Unbelievers are ignorant to, the end, to their end, to the end. They're distracted, they're disoriented. Christians, on the other hand, are disciplined and controlled. They're watchful and ready, ready for the end, living temperate, tempered and controlled in a world gone mad. And sadly, I fear this is not a very accurate description of us today. We, the church, have so easily joined in and fallen prey to the madness of this world. We are guilty of raging just as much as the nations. We work ourselves into a panic like the best of them. We're too often lacking this self-controlled wisdom and disciplined way of life that Peter commands. May we seek repentance and the fruit of self-control that God's Spirit promises to give us. But one step further, self-control is not the end in and of itself. It leads to prayer. Peter says, for the sake of, for the purpose of, in order that you may pray. I find it extremely telling that the first practice that Peter commands includes and emphasizes prayer. Prayer has been said by, by countless people who have gone before us as a barometer of one's spiritual health. I'm humbled by that every time I read it. But according to Peter, it's also a barometer of our perspective. If we have that proper perspective that the end is near, we will be moved to pray. Together, individually, regularly. We will commune with God asking for that day to come. We will plead with him to show mercy and to save many more. And we will ask him to keep us faithful and by his spirit's power help us to flee from the, from the sins in us, to mortify the sins of our flesh. Such prayers and the desire to pray comes as we live self-controlled and sober-minded in this out-of-control and intoxicated world. But second, Peter moves then, he calls for steadfast love. He says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. And that last phrase has caused a few problems as people have sought to understand this passage. Does it mean that love ignores sin? Does it mean that love forget, just simply forgives all sin? Or does love somehow cover over sin in a way that God covers sin? proper understanding, though, comes as we understand Peter is giving here a paraphrase of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where that verse says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In this verse, we see hatred and love are opposites, and so is stirring strife and covering offenses. Covering doesn't mean ignoring or sweeping under the rug, but it means bringing about peace, pursuing reconciliation. It fits the language of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 13, that famous wedding passage where Paul says, Love is patience. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. And Peter says this kind of love is already present in the midst of the believers. He praises them for it. But he says, ask for more of it. Pray that it increases. 
And it's because, as one commentator writes, love is the controlling factor in all the relationships in the church. Hence why it is above all. Because out of love, it is that we forgive the sins that we commit against one another. Out of love, we endure our differences, whatever they might be. Out of love for one another, we can confront one another when we see sin or wandering or faithlessness. And out of love, we can encourage one another, pray for one another, and build each other up. Out of love, we commit to each other. And this is Peter's desire, that their love would be earnest, which literally means without slack or stretched. The love as as believers that we are called to keep is a love that is going to be pulled, it's going to be yanked, it's going to be stretched, sometimes extremely thin. It will be put to the test at times. But it will endure. It will keep that perspective of the end of all things and the hope that is ours. The world in which we live knows nothing of such stretch and stretchable love. It only knows that, that, that love which is shallow, that love which snaps like a cheap rubber band at the first moment of tension. But that's not what our love is called to be. It's called to be earnest. It's called to be fervent. It will and has at times lost its fervency as we've lost perspective. But let us commit ourselves or recommit ourselves to loving one another earnestly, to allowing ourselves to be stretched as we hold fast to one another in love. And third, flowing out of love then, is joyful hospitality. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now in the days of the early church, Hospitality among Christians was essential. Inns were either too expensive or too dangerous. Traveling Christians back then would not have had Marriott points stocked up for those impromptu journeys from city to city. They can just roll into the inn, no cost, have a nice room. They were solely dependent upon fellow Christians to open up their homes, offer places to stay, meals before them, and fellowship to enjoy. And on top of that, the church itself relied on the hospitality of believers. Because meeting in public places at that time was risky. It put a target on this public gathering. What are they doing? What's their purpose? Gathering in large places, public places, brought unwanted attention. And so homes became those crucial places for the faithful weekly gathering of the local body for word and sacrament. If you have any doubts, just look at the book of Acts and how many times people are opening their homes in such a way. Now fear not, we're not going to be starting a a sign-up for hosting morning worship services in your home. Praise the Lord for the provision of this building and the freedom we have to gather in it to worship. And no, we are not as dependent upon such hospitality in our day where the service industry is an industry in and of itself. But still, we can't and we should not leave hospitality for the experts. Our homes should be just as much places of strength and fellowship and rest as they were for first century Christians. 
There is something unique about Christians opening their homes and serving each other. Again, to quote Edmund Clowney, he says, The fellowship of Christians in the setting of the home has a quality that can be duplicated nowhere else. So we should, as Romans 12, 13 says, seek to show hospitality, not seek for excuses. But no, hospitality doesn't need to be hard or daunting. No one's asking for a seven-course meal or freshly ironed sheets or folded towels or even a a weekend retreat in your home. A cup of coffee or tea, an hour for your kids to play together while you as parents commiserate together or encourage one another or pray together. A dinner where younger couples can glean from those who have gone before them and get wisdom. Or an afternoon to come and to help with a project around the house. Because whether we admit it or not, we need encouragement and strength that is found not only in the public gathering, but also in the private gathering of opening our homes to each other and welcoming each other and serving each other. And fourth, then, that brings us to humble service, where Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's simple. Peter says, all Christians have been given a gift. No one is exempt because no Christian is void of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, agrees with Peter when he instructs the church about spiritual gifts To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We're all given gifts so that we would use them for the encouragement, the edification, and the building up of the body. Failing to use our gifts, then, is failing to serve and to steward the grace God has given us. The grace He has so abundantly poured out on us. And the goal is straightforward. It is service. Contrary to popular beliefs, our gifts are not for self-glorification or for accolades or for attention. They're not so others can tell us, you're wonderful. I really like you. Our gifts are meant to declare the goodness of the God who not only saves, but supplies his people with all they need to serve him. They are, enabled, they are meant to enable us, his body, to fulfill our God-given purpose. Now, unlike Paul, if you notice, Peter doesn't give this extensive list of gifts. He basically summarizes such lists into two categories. Teaching and service, or verbal and nonverbal. He says, to those who have been gifted or called to teach, do so with faithfulness to what God has already spoken in his revealed word. So it's a sobering reality when Peter says, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. And most obviously this pertains to to Tim and the elders and myself as we seek to faithfully administer and minister God's word as he has equipped and called us. But it also pertains to any who use God's word to teach, to encourage, to instruct in places like Sunday school, Bible studies, one-on-one counseling, and the like. We are to speak truthfully to one another. Not simply whatever we want to speak, but truthfully what God has revealed to us in his word. And to those who are gifted to serve, 
They're to do so with the full assurance that God will strengthen and equip you for the service he's called you to. He's not going to tell you to go do it and then leave you. You're not left to try to serve in your own strength. In fact, don't try to serve in your own strength. Seek the strength that is given to you by his spirit. So then to each and every one of us here, the Lord says to us, serve one another. Avoid the temptation to view your role in church as simply consumer. Use your gifts here in this community. Serve your brothers and sisters out of the grace that God has so abundantly poured out on you in Christ. If you're not sure of your gifting, test it. Find somewhere to go and serve. Seek to serve as a good steward of God's grace. Find a need, dive in. The bulletin gives us needs. The nursery's always looking. But brothers and sisters, this collection of things, these are our proper practices. To be self-controlled so that we can pray, to love one another, to show hospitality, to serve one another. And they're not isolated from each other. As we think rightly, we pray. As we pray, our love grows. As our love grows, we show hospitality. As we show hospitality, we use our gifts to serve one another and to strengthen each other. So maybe be faithful in these, eager to see them at work more and more in our midst. But finally and briefly, all of this culminates for Peter in a proper purpose, or the proper purpose. And the purpose is simple, to glorify God in all things. He says at the end of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. And the immediate context here certainly suggests that Peter is focusing on the glory of God that is demonstrated through our service using our gifts. Because all of our gifts, again, they don't point to ourselves, but they point to the God who graciously gives them. They reveal how God saves and sustains his people. And so as much as our gifts are meant to serve and to bless one another, their ultimate purpose is to glorify God. They reveal that it is God who has made us his people. He has blessed us beyond measure in Christ. And they point to the beautiful truth of the gospel. Where dead sinners like us have been raised to new life in Christ. Our filthy rags have been traded for the wonderful riches of heaven. But Peter is not only referring to the use of our gifts. The glory of God is the focus and the purpose of everything we've looked at in verses 7 through 11. When believers use their gift to serve one another, God is glorified. When believers show hospitality and earnest love for one another, believers are glorified. When believers think rightly and sober-mindedly so that they can pray, God is glorified. When we keep that perspective of our certain hope, God is glorified. For all of these things together display the perfect and unfolding and yet to be consummated redemptive plan of God through Jesus Christ. It points to the glory of God revealed in his salvation. And it also points to the fact that our God is worthy of all glory and power because it is already his. 
This is what Peter says in his doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of all believers is to bring glory to the one who is eternally and perfectly glorious. So this final word serves as a fitting ending. Because it once again reorients the hearts and the minds of believers, not only to their perspective, but to their purpose. Suffering and hardship may be their current situation, but it is not the end. Our glorious Savior will bring us into glory. Weakness and powerlessness may be what we are enduring today, but it will not last. Our powerful Savior will strengthen his people and give them victory, his victory, in the end. And so until then, we continue to live for God's glory and ask him to receive it. We're all familiar, hopefully, with our catechism and its first question, where it says, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is the same for us as individuals in a church. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So may we seek that as a community of believers in all that we do. May our delight be when we see him receiving all the glory and the honor that is due his name. And may we live for that truly glorious purpose and allow it to continue to fuel us and to be our purpose now and through all eternity. I close by returning to that question I opened with. How does the future shape the way, not you, but we live in the present? In his famous book, Living Together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes, Between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by a gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in visible fellowship with other Christians. And if you know Bonhoeffer's story, you know just how high of a privilege he took the fellowship of believers. And know as a word of encouragement, I praise God for this body here at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I see the practice of love and service and hospitality in our midst. Look at our beautifully relocated playground, just as one small example. And I pray that it will continue to grow more and more as we labor on and press on. I see a desire in our midst that God would be glorified in all things. And I pray that that zeal will bear fruit in our lives. But let us be careful not to grow complacent or weary or distracted. Division will be a threat to us. Panic and hysteria can easily distract us. Love is hard. Prayer sometimes is harder. Service can be draining. And hospitality means sacrifice. And that doesn't even account for the trials and the struggles that we have as living sojourners and exiles here on earth. But still, let us strive to be faithful. The church living in light of the end means living together for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that we do have a glorious hope awaiting us. God, may that hope be ever before us as we labor on here as sojourners and exiles on earth. God, may it lead us then to, to practice what you have called us to practice as your people. Love for each other, 
service to one another. And God, may it keep us pursuing that purpose that you have called us and given us to glorify you in all things, to see you getting the glory that you are worth and are worthy of. Forgive us for where we have strayed in our perspectives and our practices and our purposes. But thank you that by your spirit you promise to equip and empower us and that you are gracious and that you are kind. You know that we struggle. You know that we fail. But again, you promise to be with us and to help us. So would you do that by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.